Last night I heard my mama singing a song. Ooh-wee, chirpy, chirpy, cheep, cheep. Woke up this morning and my mama was gone. Ooh-wee, chirpy, chirpy, cheep, cheep, chirpy, chirpy, cheep, cheep, cheep. Where's your mama gone? Where's your mama gone? Afternoon, Liveline. Yeah, could I have your name? Hello, please? Liveline here. Can I help Patricia, you? Patricia, and your telephone number, please. Sure, I just need a few details. What would you like to say? This is the telephone room for Radio One's phone in programme, Liveline. It's where callers first get through to and where their comments are written down and sent into the studio. One day in February 1993, a woman named Marie Comerford phoned in here. She was listening to a discussion about Jamie Bulger. The Liverpool toddler had been enticed away from his mother and killed. It turned out afterwards that those who did it were two boys, 10 years of age. I doubt anyone who was old enough to understand the story at the time will ever forget it or ever forget the impact it had on people. It wasn't just the death of a child, but the fact that he died at the hands of other children. And it wasn't just the death of a child, but the death of a morality. We all rushed to explain it. Reasons like video nasties and the breakdown of traditional family life were cited. And more. People saw Jamie Bulger's death as a product of Thatcher's Britain, the society they saw as uncaring, money-grabbing, with a core belief that greed was good. And that was the tone of some of the calls to Liveline. Beyond the genuine upset, the finger-pointing at Britain. And implicit in the finger-pointing, a sort of Irish self-satisfaction. A feeling of, well, that's the kind of thing that happens there. Maybe I'm exaggerating. That's the impression I got from some of the callers and it must have been the impression Marie Comerford got because she rang to say, hang on, it has happened here. What about my little brother Vincent? She didn't go into too many details. Although it had happened 22 years previously, what had happened to her little brother was still too upsetting for the Blackwells to retell. Now the two boys who killed Jamie Bulger are due to be released and some of the British papers are distracted with hatred towards them. Now Jamie Bulger's story has been told again it's time to tell Vincent Blackwell's story too. Where's your mama gone? Where's your mama gone? Little baby gone. Little baby gone. Where's your mama gone? Where's your mama gone? Far, far away. In 1971, Vincent Blackwell was eight years of age, the youngest of a family of seven. His mother worked at home, his father worked as a train driver. He was blonde and fragile looking, but spirited and feisty. Two of his contemporaries were Patrick Heary and Liam Doyle. Vincent was kind of wild. Like, you know, like, uh, he'd do anything. You know, he had no fear in him. Absolutely no fear in him. Even you know, like, as it comes to, I remember, 
and the trees over across the way, you could hang from the trees. Not many of us would jump off the trees, but there was nothing to Vincent like. <laughs> he would, uh, you know, he would do anything. As I say, he had a lot more nerve than the rest of us was. He was a nice bloke. He was a very um, boisterous child, I'd say, you know, stroppy, you might even say. He was full of energy. I was a little bit afraid of him at times. And now knowing children that age, being an adult, I'd say I would have liked them, you know, if I was an adult then. The other thing I remember is <coughs> this song, Where's Your Mama Gone? He, he was singing that a lot around then. Where's Your Mama Gone, Little Baby Don, whatever it is, you know, it's a big hit. Vincent's brother Noel was in his late teens in 1971. He was a shy boy. He would do anything for anybody when asked to do it. He was the baby in the family and was, of course, doted upon and could never do anything wrong. Vincent's eldest sister, Edith, was married with two children. He was very gentle, very, very gentle for a boy. And he had a beautiful little voice. And this is Marie, who we heard about earlier on. She was a teenager in 1971. He had his mind made up to what he wanted to get for, for Christmas off Santa. He was in second class, just had made his communion. He didn't join his letters. He just had print as in young children do at the time. He loved to play with dinky cars and uh, had a load of dinky cars. The Blackwells are from Finglas, from Cap Avenue, which in the 1970s was the last street in West Finglas. Across the road from the houses were cornfields. Michael Blackwell recalls how on summer days the streets and fields were full of children. What business would you have in the house? You know, like I think uh, the news, the Angela started at six o'clock and Dahi Locker was on afterwards before the news. And I mean, kids didn't have no interest in the television, which was black and white at the time anyway. So everything was done on the, on the street. You, you, you used your imagination, you know. One, two, concentration. 30 years later, Michael knows that this description of Finglas is idyllic, too good to be true. It hid a specific dreadful evil or sickness, whichever way you look at it. No one knew it then. But this had been building for most of 1971 and would erupt savagely on the afternoon of July the 15th. Michael's memory of the day begins with a boy in the neighbourhood sending for his little brother, Vincent. I went over to see what he wanted. And I went over to the house and uh, he asked me in and I went into the house. And um, I went into the kitchen. He says, me waiting to show you this trick. And he put his hand around my neck. And he squeezed my neck and he bent me over and he went back onto me, back onto the... And he put his, ch- his knee on my chest. And he squeezed me fairly tight. And I remember grabbing his arms, both both hands, and pulling, you know, pulling as hard as I could. And eventually he let go. And he said, oh, I was only messing. You know, it was only a trick, you know. I, I didn't... I didn't read much into it, you know. And I remember I got up and I could see actually stars in front of me, you know. And he says, uh, come on upstairs for a minute. And I remember he went upstairs and I followed followed him upstairs. Again, I didn't, at the time, 10 years of age, I didn't, I was very, of course, you're very naive at that age, you know, and I didn't read a lot into it. It's a pity now I did, didn't, but I remember I went upstairs and he asked me to take down my trousers. And I said, no, you're joking. I said, you must be joking. So he says, I'm only missing. So he says, uh, look, will you go down the shop and get us a Calypso bar and um, a Chocolis? And I says, yeah. So when I went down, actually Vincent was standing outside, was actually sitting on the road outside 
playing with the the tar in the road with two white pop sticks, put a bit of tar in the scent, you know. And I says, You're coming around the shop, Russ. He wants me to get uh, something around the shop. And he says, No, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, I'll count how long it takes you. Now, we used to play that when we were kids. He was going to the shop, we'd count how long it takes him to get around and vice versa. So I remember I ran around as fast as I could with that in mind as to how that he was counting how long it took me. And I remember I went into the shop. I got a shock ice and a Calypso bar and I ran back with them. Now, when I got to, would be the silver lamppost on the corner, directly on the corner, his sister was there and she was wheeling, I think, the young baby, which is his youngest brother at the time. And she said, give us those, I'll bring them in. And she was very insistent, very insistent. And of course, I thought there might might be a penny or tuppence in the family, so there's no way I was handing her over until, you know, and I remember I went around, and it was actually the fact that she was she followed me around to the house. Was I was distracted that Vincent wasn't outside at the time, and I remember I knocked at the door, and I got no answer. I knocked again, and there was still no answer. And on the third knock, after a long while, he opened the hall door. He opened it about six inches, put his hand out, and he says, "That's grand, thanks. I'll fix you up later on." Took the stuff out of my closed door and went off. I went off. Well, this is right. And I, with the fact that the horde was going on and I was distracted, I had forgotten about Vincent and I went back over across the field and started playing. So that was that. Vincent wasn't seen for several hours, but that was unremarkable. It wouldn't be unheard of, let's put it that way. You know, there wouldn't be alarm bells ringing. Somebody could have been going to the beach. It was a lovely day, you know. It was a lovely period at that particular time. It was very, very warm. Could be coming down to the beach. You wouldn't go in and tell your, tell your mother because she might say, Oh, no, 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 you're not going, you know. So you go first and pay the consequences afterwards. Edith remembers it was her mother who first noticed that Vincent was missing. She went out and she was looking for him and she couldn't find him. So, previous to that, about half an hour before that, he was at coming in, he was looking for his dinner. And my mummy said that the, the dinner was was on and it'd be ready in about an hour's time. So she gave him bread and jam and he went back out to play. She lifted up to dinner and she went to look for him and she couldn't find him and she said to herself, wait till I get my bloody hands on him. She said, I'm going to kill him. He's not in for this dinner and he's had to be looking for it. So it was put in the oven for him. So anyway, she went out a couple of times looking for him and she couldn't find him. And my dad was there and... She turned around and she said then that she was going to come down to see me and bring down bits and pieces because it was not long at moving in. She was she was hesitating whether to go or not and me dad, me dad said to her, go on, he said, sure, I'll be here. When he comes in, I'll give him his dinner. Vincent's father had been on night shift and had gone to bed, but when he got up later in the evening, Vincent was still missing. Oh, he was wondering where he was. You know, and and and, and uh, where was Vincent? And they were they were looking for him everywhere, and then I come to me door. At the door was a woman from the neighbourhood with her son. Her son was the very boy who had been trying to call Vincent into his house all day long. He had tried to strangle Michael, and he had sent Michael for some sweets. The neighbour said her son had just told her some very interesting news. They have to find him, a body down in uh, Watery Lane direction. Around the tray, oh, be God, says I that. I better go down to the police station. So I ran across the road, 
just up the road offered me a lift down to the police station. So we went down there and uh, Superintendent Joy, he says, uh, he says, see, what kind of uh, clothes do you think he was wearing? Well, he says, well, the last time they said, so you, that, that he was, was just probably a little striped T-shirt, yeah, so it was just striped T. So, uh, so we went down to, uh, to Watery Lane, drove down, we went down, and he was lying in the Fawessa's farm in the, on, 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 on the side, and they made a grab to pick him up. And the uh, superintendent Joy stopped me, he says, don't look at him, he says, don't, don't, he don't keep that out of your mind, but be be there with you for the rest of your life. And it was Vincent Alroy. John Willie Reynolds was a detective sergeant in the Gardaí at the time. There was a young lad murdered in Watery Lane in Finglas. And uh, I familiarised myself with the case in full in as much as that I found out that his father, the deceased father, was a train driver. And very, they were very respectable people as far as the guards were concerned. When something like that happens, what do you do first? Where do you, how do you process a crime like that? The first thing is the people talk. And my experience of it was that the first two days of a serious crime is the most important time for the investigation of any crime. Because people will, they'll have, the sympathy would all be with the, with the injured party or the deceased friends. But after that, then, when it comes to what's the kind of cold, the sympathy all goes back to the accused. Fortunately for the guards in Finglas, the two-day rule didn't apply here. The assailant actually identified himself, wittingly or unwittingly. He was coming home that year, that, that night he was walking up the road, and Mrs. Murray was, was there, and he said to Mrs. Murray, he said, that's what about Vincent Blackwell, he says, has been found dead down the watery lane. She said, how do you know it was Vincent Blackwell? I see, I heard it. If that was the force, it was, was mentioned of Vincent Blackwell. So uh, Superintendent Joy got a hold of that, and of course, it wasn't long till they, they hadn't. One of the last people in Finglas to find out about Vincent's death was his mother Annie. She had been up visiting her daughter Edith in Ballymun. And when she got home, she was walking up the road, and you have to turn around the corner to get to where my mother's house. And it was all people standing out there, and some of the kids on the road were telling her that Vincent was at being found. But she didn't, it wasn't sinking in with her, like she just thought he was at the hurt, being hurt or something till she got inside. And then the news was broke to her. When she came in, the house was full of people. With all the children was there, that was full. All my mates, friends was there. And when she came in, she knew immediately there was something wrong. And when we told her then, what happened? She collapsed in the chair and that's that's it. She went into a in, in into a days and she was in that days for months afterwards. I didn't know about this that night because it turned out that my mammy was that saying, There's no point, she has two young babies and there's no point in going down and waking her up this hour tonight, leave it till in the morning. Actually when I got there I looked in the oven and his dinner was still on the plate and I, had to, I threw it out. His dinner from the day before. One boy was dead, another was in custody. 
Philomena Whelan remembers the effect on the adults on the road. They were sad. They were sad, but that's all. I never saw anger in them. It was just a sadness, a terrible sadness. Two boys. One little baby died, little boy that done it. I knew both of them. I feel very sad for both mothers because they both lost their sons. And they were friends. The both mothers were friends. On the other hand, the children on the road reacted differently. They didn't really grasp what was going on. Liam Doyle and Michael Blackwell. I remember people saying Vincent was missing and adults were out looking for him. My father and my uncle were out looking for him. I didn't really think, you know, anything of it, I suppose. I I thought it was a bit... He was lucky in a way, you know, all these people were looking for him. It was very exciting. And he was the centre of all that attention, you know. (laughs) I remember I was brought into the station and I gave a small preliminary statement, if you like. I remember actually coming back in the car and there's one thing that actually sticks in my mind on my way back. Because I've got it. I'm going, I'm going to tell Vincent when I get home that I was in the police car, in the police station because the police station was a novelty. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't be in the police station unless you were in trouble. I said, <coughs> when I get home, I'm going to tell him I was in the police station. The story of what had happened to Vincent when Michael went to the shops slowly began to emerge. Basically, what happened was after I had left, he had called Vincent in, and he had actually beaten him unconscious, and he had him upstairs in the back bedroom, lying on the bed. He then went into another room and got a pair of his mother's tights and he went back and he strangled him. He then got his body, brought it downstairs, put it into the coal shed. They put it into a sack and then put it into, put it into the coal shed and went about his normal daily business. His brother came home, had his lunch, everything was normal. After his brother had gone, to, gone, gone back to work, he then got an old pram out of my garden put Vincent's body in the pram and put a bag of bottles on top of it. He then left the house and walked <clears throat> a fair distance down to Waterdown and dumped his body. And he tried unsuccessfully to get a, a manhole cover open. He then walked back and on his return he met my mother who was still looking for Vincent at the time. She asked me, had she seen Vincent? And he said, oh, no, 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 like, grand, I didn't miss Black, but now I'm sorry. The boy who had been taken into custody admitted to the killing and was charged with murder. His trial came up three months later and the Blackwells got ready to go to court. They wanted to hear what happened, why Vincent was killed and they wanted to see his killer locked up for a long time. Vincent's father, Tom. We got word then that, that the case was coming up in, in the Central Criminal Court and, and uh, the police come that noise and said that there'd be no evidence. We weren't required to give evidence. So we went up then the next day and he was brought up and he was come up over the ground. The judge asked him, how would you plead? He said, not guilty, but guilty of manslaughter. And had the man said, that the state has accepted the plea of manslaughter. I've got a lump in me, in me throat. And so, so that's that. So, so yeah. And that went on and I, I, I said to the, the judge, I said to him, 
So the lawyer said, who, who are people going to know, says I, what this fella did? So what's our neighbours going to know how this fella did this job? Says I, their own children knocking around, says I. Says I, there'd be no head, no nothing. How was, was going to print, says I, says I, what happened? It's out of my hands, says Says, okay, if it's out of my hands, I can do nothing, just have to go. I was to go to court Monday morning. And of course, I was, I was, I think it was 11 or 12 at the time. Bathed early, usual, you were in bed early, and the door was knocked at 11 o'clock at night. It won't be needed. Don't bother. The guard was very sympathetic. He says, apparently, he has made a play and has been accepted. There'll be no trial, we know nothing. It'll be a preliminary hearing tomorrow and for psychiatric reports and all that sort of thing. And you're left standing there with your mouth open. The killer was given bail, provided he checked into Dundrum Mental Hospital voluntarily. But there was another slight for the Blackwell family, as Garda John Willie Reynolds recalls. Now, in a short time after that, on a Sunday, I was in my home and Blackwell's father came to the door to me. And he said to me, asked me what type of law was in this country at the moment. And I asked him what he meant and he was very agitated. And I said to him, what's your problem? And he said to me, I brought him in and he said to me that uh, the accused person was actually at that time above in the flats in Ballymun. I saw him, that could not be possible. As far as I was concerned, he was down in prison. He said no. So I took about his word anyway and I telephoned Noel Conroy as far as the Deputy Commissioner now, the guards, and uh, we went up and we found him actually in in the flats. He was definitely out. And he tried to escape and we held him. But having, so we asked him then how he got out. He told us he was out and, and leave, leave of absence. So I naturally became very annoyed with this and uh, I found that Blackwell was had a genuine grievance that his, the fellow that murdered his, 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 his child was walking about at large and he told me that his son was uh, down six feet under the ground. It turned out that the killer had been let out on family visits from Dundrum. When the sentencing hearing came up in 1973, almost two years after the death of Vincent, his family were deeply angry with the killer and the system. This is Vincent's sister, Anne. My dad asked if you could take Dan and talk on behalf of the family. And Dad went up and he, he was talking about the murder and the murder jumped up from the dock and said that he was going to get me, Dad. I'll get you, he said. <laughs> and with that, I just lost all reason. And I, I jumped up and I grabbed him. I, I ran up from where I was sitting and I grabbed him. And I said, you bastard. I said, you've got one of us. I said, you won't get the second of us. It was very hard to sit there and and look at at this guy who had murdered your brother and put your family through all this and sit there and be calm. All hell broke loose and there was a free-for-all and all, the father got into it and they were all free-for-all and I remember the, the judge got down behind the, the bench to, for protection and uh, the council's wig was t- t- pulled off his head and we had, was an awful, we had an awful time there to, to regain kind of any kind of sanity or peace at all. The killing of Vincent took its toll on the family. His father Tom said he started to drink heavily at a time when he should have been more support to his wife. As for his wife Annie... That days he talked about on the night of the killing did continue for a long time afterwards. She used to wear an apron and I walked in and she had the same apron on her that she had for a good few days, which wasn't like her. Every day she had a clean one 
and she was standing looking out the window and I said to her mum I said why are you doing with that apron on you why didn't you put it clean she said what's the point love she said I'm standing out here looking out the window to see what I see me child maybe come along and play she was that much dramatised by it she just it took a hell of a lot and as we say there was no counselling nobody came to see how they were she went down to her doctor all he wanted to do was put her on tranquilizers, which my mother was dead dead against Mrs Blackwell eventually made contact with the psychiatrist who advised her to get some part time work which did help but as Noel recalls all of the family needed help and they were all left to cope with their own grief on their own. We needed somebody to, to, to explain what was really happening and what we could expect was going to happen within the family. You know, how life goes on and how you can, how you can get yourself into a situation that you can begin to heal yourself. In the 1970s, the Blackwells needed answers to questions to help with that healing. They didn't get those answers. They had questions about counselling. They had questions about the way they were treated by the court system. And most important of all, they wanted to know why Vincent was killed. 30 years later, most of those questions are still unanswered. I'm going to try and answer them, but I'm also going to try and answer for myself how much things have changed in Ireland. How different is it now, 30 years on? Let's start with the question of counselling. If Vincent Blackwell were killed today, would the state offer counselling and would it help? To find out, I went to Wicklow Town and Ballygyle Estate. There, at the end of September 2000, young Jonathan Kelly, 12 years of age, died after an argument. He had been stabbed. A nine-year-old boy was questioned by Gardaí and a file is due to go to the DPP. On the day I arrived, his parents, Eddie and Breda, were opening a letter which typified the approach of the state. Now, Mr and Mrs Kelly, I'm writing you to... You as the social worker on the paediatric surgical team. It was from Crumlin Hospital, inviting them to come and talk to the doctor who dealt with their son before he died. They've also been approached by the local health board and been offered counselling. Breda, Jonathan's mother, has taken it up. Well, I find it easier to talk to a stranger than I would now Teddy. Because you now this morning I was roaring my heart out this morning. Just, it's an effort just even to sweep the flower. Eddie's at the moment doing all the housework. And Eddie said to me, now, what's upset you now? Why are you crying? And I get really mad with him. I just say to him, what the hell do you think I'm crying for? I said, Eddie, you know, do you, have to, do you have to keep asking that question? Sometimes I like to thump him, you know, when he does say that. Because I go around and I'll be all right one in the next minute, something will just click. And I go into a daze then. And he says, come on, snap over. It's very hard. With men, you sort of keep it all to yourself. You bottle it up, keep it in. But I, I, I don't at the moment now, keep it in. Like I, I, I do cry now, I do cry now. And um, I don't feel like that I, I, I should go out and talk to other people about it, you know. I like to keep it to myself. I could talk to Breda, but, um, or my mother, or family members. But when it's a stranger, it's a different thing. Like you don't, you like to keep it private to yourself. That's my my opinion of it anyway. The counsellor? Yeah. I, I, is it a he or she? She's a, a girl. 
girl is it just an ear she's giving you or is she offering you ways of dealing with the grief it's an ear and she's offering me other ways you know ways of dealing with it like go for walks or don't if you feel like crying cry don't like Eddie always trying to get me to stop crying you know to sort of hold it in and then there's time I feel I'm cracking up I feel just that much pressure on my head my head is going thinking I'm going to explode you know and I said that to her and she said that's uh, a way for your body to shut down you know when you go into sort of like a trance about you have too much grief going on inside that you just shut down because I thought I actually did think I was cracking so I asked her should know that happens with everyone that's going through a grief. So people deal with it different. And that's why made me dealing with it, just staring into space. And what about the courts? What would it be like for the Blackwells if they had to go to court today? Well, Victim Support and Anne Mead from that organisation says things have improved over the years. There are now places for families to sit in court. Victim Support provides somebody to sit with the family and explain to them the goings-on. There's improved compensation as well. A family can now receive £20,000 after a murder. In the Blackwell's case, they had to borrow money in order to bury Vincent. But the most important development, according to victim support, has been the introduction of the victim impact statement, in which the court takes account of the impact on the victims of a particular crime. It's not yet clear, though, the status of that report in the case where the victim is actually deceased. The victim impact statement helps the family to feel part of the proceedings. And the victim impact statement is not meant to influence sentencing. But, uh, for example, we often hear uh, in the case of the guilty party, people will come into court to give evidence to his good character. He was never in trouble with the law before. But as one mother said to me, nobody stood up to say that my daughter can no longer stand at a bus stop on her own. Nobody asked me how I coped in the past two years. But a core issue for the Blackwells was the fact that the state accepted a lesser plea. The Gardaí charged Vincent's killer with murder. The state accepted manslaughter. At the time, in 1971, responsibility for such prosecutions lay with the Attorney General, who was Colm Condon. I spoke to him and he said the way he ran his office was to devolve responsibility for the prosecution of the cases to the counsel assigned to that case. Unfortunately, barristers cannot comment on cases to which they've been assigned. So what's the situation nowadays? Could the state accept a reduced plea from a killer and do so without discussing it with the family beforehand? Paul Anthony McDermott is a barrister who's written on criminal law. The prosecution have a duty only to bring a charge before a jury if they feel there is credible evidence upon which a conviction can be based. If the prosecution doesn't feel that there is sufficient evidence to warrant a conviction for murder, it would be wrong for the prosecution to put a murder charge before the jury. Because even if they did, in the circumstances where there wasn't sufficient evidence, any conviction would be liable to be overturned by a higher court, as in the Court of Criminal Appeal. In Ireland, a charge of murder is a very difficult one to bring home. There are a number of defences available to people which will reduce the charge to manslaughter. In this particular case, the family found out that they weren't going to be needed in court the night before the case took place. Nowadays, 30 years later, is is it automatically explained to a family what's going on in the court and why certain pleas are accepted? 
There's no formal system in this country at the moment for involving victims in a criminal case. A criminal case is brought by the DPP on behalf of the people and the victim is simply a witness in the case or their family may be witnesses. However, as a matter of courtesy, barristers will make sure that the family are aware of what is going on. They will explain the nature of the proceedings and they will explain what's happening on a day-to-day basis. But there is no formal mechanism for doing that. It's done as a matter of courtesy. Is it ad hoc? Ad hoc is one way of describing it, but I'd like to think in vast majority of cases the people involved in them are kept fully informed by their barristers. And now to the final question. Why did Vincent Blackwell die? Why did a 14-year-old boy living in Finglas in 1971 choose an 8-year-old neighbour and kill him? The court reports from the papers from the time provide some clues. One psychiatrist who interviewed the boy testified that his home life was, quote, one where there had been some deprivation and certain quarrels between the parents, which caused a lot of anxiety. The parents had fought in front of him and the father admitted to having a bad temper and having a problem with alcohol. The rest of the reports in the papers, however, are frustrating. A psychiatrist testified that the killer was not insane, and I'm quoting here, but had a personality disorder which would predispose him to behave in a way under stress, likely to harm others or himself. This occurred when he was provoked and he was likely to respond impulsively and dangerously. The judge asked the psychiatrist in what way the killer might have been provoked by an eight-year-old boy. He couldn't say. I felt that the only way to find out what happened was to try to contact the man who had been convicted of killing Vincent Blackwell. He should have the answers. For the past couple of weeks now I've been trying to make contact with the man who killed Vincent Blackwell and I've just got a call from him now. He says he'll meet with me. I don't know if he's going to do an interview or what he's going to tell me. I'm... As I drive along, I'm trying to think what I'm going to ask him. I mean, obviously, I'm interested in finding out what his childhood was like. Certainly around the time that he killed Vincent. What has happened to him since. And to tell me about the killing itself and the question I'm sure you want to hear the answer to is why. Why did he do it? Because the case involved a minor, the boy, now the man, cannot be identified. I'm going to call him by the initial J. He recorded an interview with me and agreed for it to be used with an actor's voice, but then he changed his mind, but agreed for me to tell his story. Jay's memory of the fields around the houses in Finglas were not of wide open spaces in which to play, but as the territory of a sexual abuser who preyed on him as well as other children. He reported the abuser to his family, but was told to stay out of his way. He says he remembers nothing of the day of the killing, except being told by a friend that there were Gardaí at his house and that if he had done something wrong, to run away. Instead, he went home. He has blanked the killing and the disposal of the body from his mind. He knew afterwards that he had done wrong, but he doesn't know why that didn't stop him killing Vincent. Jay just cannot explain why he did what he did. When I mention that perhaps it had something to do with the unhappiness in his life, he becomes agitated. He doesn't want to discuss it. He thinks that to talk about the unhappiness in his life sounds like he's making excuses and trivialising his crime. He points out that other people have unhappy periods in their lives and don't go out and kill someone. 
He says he takes full responsibility for the killing. However, he just doesn't know why he chose Vincent. Jay says he's had no professional help since he left prison and has no interest in seeking any. His impression of psychiatrists is overwhelmingly negative. He claims that he got no treatment in Dundrum and always felt that the interviews he had with psychiatrists were for their benefit and for the benefit of their paperwork rather than for his mental health. He describes one situation where he was brought into an auditorium before about 40 people. He was asked a string of questions, few of which he could understand, and felt like an exhibit. He says he was given drugs in Dundrum to bring him up or down. Prior to Dundrum, Jay was in Mount Joy, the youngest prisoner there at the time. Some of the older prisoners attacked him, calling him child killer. He recalls waking up one night with a sewer rat on his pillow. He says he has a fear of rats and mice and says he had to get injections to fall asleep after that. After Dundrum, Jay was sent to St. Patrick's Institution. There, he said, he burnt his cell, harmed himself, fought with everyone, got involved in a rooftop protest and, as a result, lost all his remission. He left prison with two skills. He had been taught to play the guitar by a nun there, a skill he used as a part-time musician. And he also became a good leather worker, but it was a declining trade by the time he came out. Jay got out of prison at 20 and says he rushed into everything to make up for lost time, including, he says, marriage. He was married at 24, had children and separated over 10 years later. He's now in a new relationship and says he's just beginning to feel settled. He says he thinks about the killing every day of his life. He has never contacted the Blackwells, assuming the last person they would want to hear from is him. However, he ends by saying he's deeply sorry for what he did. I asked Jay permission to speak with a psychiatrist who interviewed him in custody. He gave it. The psychiatrist took out a file from 30 years ago and explained the case. Again, the interview couldn't be recorded. The psychiatrist told me that he had had only one interview with Jay and although he'd been in custody for over three months, the interview wasn't scheduled until two weeks before the court case, totally insufficient for any detailed assessment of the killer's state of mind. The psychiatrist had just returned from America at the time where he'd been working with adolescent murderers. He applied some of the same tests to Jay. For example, the boy was asked to draw a telegraph pole. This he drew as a bare pole with no wires extending from it. Along with other information, this led the psychiatrist to suggest that this was a boy with few, if any, emotional connections outside himself. Jay didn't mention sexual abuse in the interview with the psychiatrist. He described the killing by saying, I saw the nylon there and pulled it around his neck. I was just messing. It was an accident. The psychiatrist also had one interview each with Jay's parents. Jay's mother mentioned that he had been an accident-prone child and had at one stage spent over three months in hospital with a cyst. The psychiatrist said this would have had a significant emotional impact on Jay, especially as they were the days when parents weren't encouraged to stay with their children in hospital. The other significant point the psychiatrist made is that Jay ran away from home three times in 1971, once to London and twice to Belfast where he tried to join the British Army. His father had been in the British Army and had seen action. Jay was described as very limited emotionally, depressed, anxious. He had a very low self-esteem and was full of self-doubt. He had no emotional supports in his life, there was no adult he could turn to, and he was a vulnerable victim of physical abuse. But as to the straight question, why did he kill Vincent Blackwell, the psychiatrist said he couldn't answer that after one interview. 
He said that nowadays a boy like Jay would be taken into an assessment centre for three weeks where he would be assigned a key worker. His family would also be assessed and a more detailed and accurate appraisal would be made. This prompted the question about what would happen to a boy like Jay if he went to prison nowadays. I contacted another psychiatrist, Dr Paul McQuaid. He was part of a campaign in the 1970s called CARE, members of which marched in protest at the treatment of young offenders and lobbied for changes in the treatment of children in court. However, Dr McQuaid says, 30 years later, the treatment of offenders in prison is ad hoc. Some young people are in need of, of, of just recognition of their special needs and they can be provided for in their home and family and community. Others need far more intensive care and, 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 and support and help. And will they get that automatically? No, they don't. No, not automatically. Very often it has to be fought through in the court situation. And if anybody's aware of what's been going on in, for example, the High Court and Judge Kelly, for example, they will be aware that case by case by case um, they're being uh, they're being taken through the court system and, and the state and the various institutions of state being required to address the needs of those individuals. I'm in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin and I'm at the grave of Vincent Blackwell and it's also the grave of his mother Annie who never actually visited here and never actually came here until she was brought here to be buried herself. She couldn't bring herself to visit the grave. Why did I come here? Um, I came here to say hello to Vincent. I've been working on a story and thinking about a story for seven years and I also came here to reflect on his life and and I know the Blackwells won't want to hear this but also to reflect on the life of the boy now the man who killed him and to think about what we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes it's heartening to know that a lot of things have changed in 30 years for the victims and for children who are involved in violence it's disheartening and makes me so angry to think that a lot of the changes are by chance and they're not formalised and they're ad hoc and that if the Blackwells were to go into court nowadays they wouldn't receive automatic kindness or courtesy or explanations. It would be at the grace and favour of the councillor in the court and if the boy who killed Vincent Blackwell was to go to court nowadays he wouldn't receive automatic treatment, auto- automatic incarceration in a secure environment. It would depend on the judge that was sitting on the bench, and that's really so disappointing to know. I'm also here to reflect on what is the central tragedy of the story for me, which is the separation of children from their parents, children torn from their parents through death or whatever other emotional damage. And somebody told me the other day about an opera by Puccini called Suar Angelica. And in it, the central character, Angelica, discovers that her child has died. And she sings about that. And being Puccini and being Italian opera, it's a little bit overblown. But for me, it does sum up some of the tragedy of this story. She sings, Without a mother, my baby, you died. Your lips, without my kisses, grew pale and cold. And you closed, my baby, your beautiful eyes. Not being able to caress me, you folded your little hands in a cross. And you died without knowing how much your mother loved you. 